All right, buckle up. Let's go. We're going to run through a rather large amount of text today. So you know the outline. We talked about the first four collections a good deal. The collection that we're on right now is the fifth one. And the fifth one is focused upon the idea of a leader and middle management. So all of the Proverbs here are going to be dealing with that perspective and dealing with things from a leadership point of view. There are obviously applications for all of us, but that is the focus of the text. And so we've gone through 28 before, and I want to fly over some of it here, um, and I want to point out a couple of things, but uh, we're not going to spend as much time there. The notes there are obviously more full, but um, I hope there is to, is to review some of it and point out a few key things. So uh, the first one, notice the introduction to the whole section here. Chapter 28, verse 1, the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. This is a principle for us. This is an operating principle. Here's the thing. We don't want to charge. Why don't we want to charge? Because we're afraid we'll lose. If you think you're going to win, you don't really worry about charging. When you think you're going to win, you don't really worry about it. Somebody just tells you, like if God told you you're invincible here, you're going to charge, you're going to win, it's going to be awesome, you're going to take all their stuff, and everybody's going to honor you for the victory, you'd go, okay, all right, so God's promised me I'm not going to have injury. So if we're injured in the process of doing our duty, you think the Lord is going to use that for your good? So this idea that we need to take risk, this is a verse that encourages us to take risk. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. So the principle of when there's a fight that has to be had, have the attitude of boldness about it, be bold in it, and the general tendency is going to be not only will you win, but the bad guys will run away. The bad guys will run away. So, if you look at mealy-mouthed Christians engaging with the world, they don't seem bold, and they embolden the people that are conflicting with them. If we stand boldly on the Word of God, if we know it well, and we aren't ashamed of any of it, and we simply put it forward, then we argue and don't retreat and then we counterattack. And when you do that, they don't know how to deal with it. So, you think homosexuality is sin? What about eating shellfish? The Old Testament is just a bunch of rules about you're wearing poly cotton blends. There are a bunch of rules that you don't follow. Do you know how to deal with that really quickly? Like, if you don't know how to just dispatch that, okay? Those are ceremonial laws. If you've studied Christian doctrine at all, then you, person who's talking to me, would know the difference between the moral law, the ceremonies, and the civil law. Are you familiar with those categories or any of the thousands of books that have been written on them in the last 2,000 years? Have you studied this at all? Is this the kind of interview prep you do for everyone you talk to or just Christians because you think we're stupid? Right? That response. Have you ever seen anybody respond that way when being asked that? Why? Why not? Do you feel like you could respond that way or would you feel like that's overly harsh? Because if these people have done any interview prep at all, they will know that that's the answer. What are they doing? They're lying. 
Their goal is to ask you questions that deceive the people listening. Treat them like they're doing that. So if you have that attitude, the response of the wicked flee when no one pursues, insult them justly. Insult them justly. Don't insult them unjustly. There are plenty of just reasons to insult them. Use those. Insult them justly. Tell them that they are obviously ignorant and they haven't thought about it at all. Embarrass them. Let's make them embarrassed. So when we engage, what we need to do is we need to pursue because they'll run away even when no one's pursuing. Let's let them know that we're on their heels. So if you have that response, this is the battle for the court. This is the battle for the king's court. When you're in the places of battle for power, notice the title, power, pursuit, use, and effects. Well, we know the effects when we don't have power and we don't use it. Look around, the dismantling of all the institutions built by Christians. What about when you pursue it? Well, if you pursue it wrongly through compromise and giving up on all the things that really matter and by cowering out on the use of the word, then the effect is it's like we don't have it. Okay, so we pursue power by the law of God. What is the law? The law of God is an instruction manual for dominion. It's an instruction manual for dominion. You apply the law of God, and it's going to result in power. It just can't help it. The law just can't help itself. It just keeps giving power to the people who apply it. It just keeps happening. And so we can rely upon God to bless the use of the law. It's an instruction manual that teaches us about the nature of reality, the nature of man. It teaches us about God. It gives us insight. It gives us courage. And the more you apply it, the more you're going to see the results that God has told us we can expect. And even when it doesn't go the way you want it to, even when it hurts, you're going to find that God used it for your good. So the chastisements that come by the Lord's hand when we try and fail are things that are used for our good. And so we need to be courageous knowing that the God of heaven is the God that gave this law and he promised us that he would be with us to take over the land. The last thing Jesus told his disciples before he left was, go take over the world, I'll be with you. It's the same thing God said to Joshua. That's the point. We have the same mission. Now, we go into verses 2 through 11. This is the relationship of instruction to rule. So the Torah, or law, is a measuring rod for rule, especially regarding the rich and the poor. James has the same subject matter. You remember I told you that James and Proverbs have a lot of overlap? James and Proverbs have a lot of overlap. It seems like God thought it was important enough to repeat And you read the book of Proverbs and you go, I'm pretty sure I read that earlier. No, it was slightly different. It was in a different chapter. But yes, it was important enough for God to repeat. Right? So you have James, you have Proverbs, you have a lot of that overlap of teaching. So what do we do here? Well, if you're in a position where you have any resources, it's your job to rule justly. To use them justly. How do you rule justly? You apply the word of God to your resources. Put the word of God on your door. Right, so you apply that. You make it increasingly conscious and consistent. You know what the most conscious sort of ruling your door with the Word of God is? Literally writing it on it and thinking about it when you walk by it. So I'm very grateful for my wife, who I talked about it a lot. and was like, it would be nice if there was Scripture on our walls. She did it. 
It's nice looking. If I had done it, it'd be like spray painted on the wall. I'd be like, I got through one verse. No more room in the wall. Moving on. Very ugly. Can't read it. So thankfully, she actually put the word on the wall for us in our house. Right? So you have the word. You're reminded of the word. And don't become blind to it. When you see things all the time, what happens? You start to not think about it. Unless you're intentional about it. Pick things you actually want to memorize. Memorize them. Once they're memorized, put a different one up. Imagine that. Put a different one up after you've memorized the one that you wanted to memorize. Change helps us to refocus on it. Okay. Now, am I saying if you don't literally put a sign up with the Bible written on it on your wall or doorpost that that's sin? What do you think I'm going to say? Which one? You actually don't know, right? You have no idea which one I'm actually going to say. Well, does God command it? Does God actually command us to put the word on our wall or on our doorposts? So, yeah. If we don't put the word up in our space, we're not fulfilling that command. If you don't have the word up in your space, then you're not fulfilling that command. If we don't do it maximally beautifully, we're not fulfilling the command. Right? So you're never going to do it perfectly. Deal with that. Let that sit on you. You're never going to fulfill it perfectly. But we more and more want to figure out how do we actually put the word in our space so that we can think about it and have it be something that's coming into our minds. We want the, the conversation we have. What's the, what's the purpose of the verse to say, write it on your doorpost? The purpose is to say, govern it, right, with the word of God. But why does he use that symbol of writing it on the doorpost? Because writing it makes it more explicit and makes it public. If you're not behaving in a Christian way and somebody walks in and sees the verse on your door, do you feel ashamed? Do they think you're a hypocrite? Absolutely, on both. One of the reasons for explicit Christian manifestations of culture is to make it so that we stop being lazy and cowardly and hypocritical. Because we are lazy and cowardly and hypocritical. Right? If we weren't, we would own the place. So we need to get rid of that laziness, hypocrisy, and cowardice. The reason to do these things is not because you think everybody who looks at the word written on your doorpost is going to get converted. The reason you do it is because I'm lazy, I'm hypocritical, I'm cowardly, and I need to create pressure for myself to be consistent. That is what that's about. So, the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are afraid of putting up the word on the walls, on the doorposts. That's what we're afraid of. What should we be? We should be bold as lions. Because of the transgression of the land, many are its princes, but by a man of understanding and knowledge, right will be prolonged. So here we talk about the idea of the duty of ruling wisely. And in ruling wisely, it allows for a prolongation of authority. And when a ruler is wise and righteous, it helps the land to be more wise and righteous. If the land is righteous, it's going to have godly princes. There's, you know, ultimately, everybody gets the rulers they deserve. Right? Countries that are in chaos morally tend to have chaotic and moral rulers. 
And if you happen to get a good ruler, they tend to not last in a nation that hates righteous rulers. But righteous rulers can be blessed by God to see the moral order in a nation established in a way that's better. And so what we get to here in verse 2, verses 2 through 11, there's a structure. And I think I pointed this out last time. It's A, B, C, D. And I can't remember where it ends. The last one's a letter. It goes through E, and then there's A through E prime. Okay, so we have a repetition of, of themes. So, because of the transgression of a land, many are its princes, but a man of understanding and knowledge, uh, right will be prolonged. So, righteousness is prolonged by just rule. And justice, which is the purpose of a king, is administered longer by one who is just. God has structured reality so that unjust kings get taken out. So look at uh, Larger Catechism 129.7 on page 3 here. At the very end, I have the bold part. Here's one of the duties of superiors. If you have any place of rule, if you're in authority at all, by grave, wise, holy, and exemplary carriage, it's your duty to procure glory to God, honor to yourself, and to preserve that authority which God has put upon you. Grave, wise, holy, and exemplary carriage. You carry yourself in a serious way. You carry yourself in a wise way. You carry yourself in a holy way. What's a holy way? It's focused upon the glory of God. And it's an exemplary way. It's a way that's examples for others. When you do that as a ruler in your household, over yourself, in the church, in the state, it procures glory to God. It brings honor to you. It preserves your authority. The proverb here is saying the same thing. By a man of understanding and knowledge, right will be prolonged. He's going to rule. He's going to rule longer, and therefore he's going to be able to administer justice longer. Page 4. The poor man who oppresses the poor is like a driving rain, which leaves no food. Alright, so last time I mentioned Mao here. Mao is a Mao makes Hitler look like a toddler. Mao kills order of magnitude more people than Hitler. Roughly the same time era, by the way, than about a decade. Well, we see that murder that he commits, he has this grasping, angry response. He steals everything he can from the peasantry in China. There's this guy who is angry about other people having things, and the level of sociopathic, psychopathic, wickedness, totally depraved, constant transgression of the law, the heart's deceitfully wicked, who can know it, evil, just oozing out of that guy is possible in every one of us. We can all be that bad. And so what God does is he restrains wickedness. And when wickedness is empowered and you have a petty tyrant over people who do not have resources... He's like a driving rain that leaves no food. There's no bread left. And that means he loses power, he destroys his own power base, and he takes away the power of everybody else. You know where most of the successful revolts against tyrannical power occur? You think it's in poor countries? It's typically in places where there's a relatively prosperous, relatively large percentage of the population that is able to assemble around some sort of existing authority. That's the historical norm for what avoids a constant cycle of revolution and tearing down of government after government after government, replacing it with one tyrannical one after another. And 
Those also happen to be in Protestant countries where there's a capitalist class because of the property rights taught in the Word of God. So those are the examples. If you think everything's going to get worse and when things are bad enough, then people will respond. No, if people lose their resources, they are not bold. People defend resources, and when they don't have resources, they tend to run away and they tend to cower out. Building resources makes people feel like they've got something to lose. So when you have an encouragement of an ownership class, when you encourage people to build up property, there's a willingness to resist. You go, this is my place. This is my home. I have something here. I'm willing to say no. I'm willing to preserve my stuff. And I'm going to give it to my kids. And you're not going to make it so they get nothing. That's the kind of setting that helps to encourage resistance to tyranny. So you hear me preach a lot about the duty of a state building. One of the reasons is because God uses your hard work stored up in the stuff you've built to egg you on to resist evil. Because you go, I don't want everything I spent my life building to just be taken by the wicked and used for wickedness. That's a part of the structure of reality that encourages people to say no. Now, the other thing is ruling is hard and if you're productive, you don't want to do it. Because you just go, I'd rather do my thing with my stuff and enjoy it. So you look at the opposite of what oppresses and leaves no food. Exodus 18.21. I would strongly encourage you to re- memorize these requirements of a magistrate. A magistrate is supposed to be able, a man... Fearing God, a man of truth, and a man that hates covetousness. Those are the men you're supposed to place over you as rulers. Being able or competent, the, the term there is Ishkail, a man of valor. You've heard me use that phrase a lot. Okay, so Kail there is the capability. They're supposed to be men, not women. And they are supposed to be types that fear God. If you vote for somebody who does not fear God, you are voting for somebody who is not qualified. Men of truth, they're concerned for truth-telling, they're also concerned for oath-keeping, and they hate covetousness. And I talked about how socialism is envy-exalted, covetousness-exalted. There is, if somebody's platforming on the redistribution of wealth, they are appealing to covetousness and trying to fan the flames of covetousness to spread their power base. Now, this is nice, but it's difficult to take up the burden of rule and so there is this tendency to not want to rule so there's another goad that god put into the nature of reality to make men rule here's the goad if i don't rule who will the fear of being ruled by lesser men is a great goad to power the fear of being ruled by lesser men is a great goad to power. If Christians do not rule, the power vacuum will be filled. It has been filled. You're looking at it. Instead of being discipled by Tucker Carlson, I encourage you to be discipled by what the scriptures say about this. What we need to do is we need to 
realize that it's our duty to take power, it's our duty to apply the word of God, and what you do to take power is you work hard, you build things, you make them beautiful, you attract other people with the resources you have, and you disciple them. If you have children, disciple them. If you have a wife, disciple her. Wash her in the word. You don't have enough time, you don't have enough resources. You need more resources, you need more people. Start with the closest. Lead your wives well. Lead your children well. Life is short. It is easy to let years go by and not do that. It's easy to hear it and to think, yeah, I should do that, and then not do it. This idea of looking for ways to have power, the way you get power is by serving. You work. You get things by working and serving. Look for ways to serve people. That's not just for a wage. It's not just when you're on the clock. You work all the time. You know what recreation is? It's different kinds of work that you find refreshing at the time you're doing it because it's different from the work you were doing before. What's the Sabbath? The Sabbath is not a day to lie around. The Sabbath is not a day for idleness. The Sabbath is a day for holy work, a different kind of work than you spent the rest of the week doing. We are called to work. And that work will bring joy and fruitfulness. And I want to read you Judges 9, verses 7 to 15. And I want you to think about the alternative of ruling and taking on the burden of rule. Verse, chapter 9, verse 7. This is Judges. Now, when they told Jotham, he went and stood on Mount Gerizim and lifted his voice and cried out. And he said to them, Listen to me, you men of Shechem, that God may listen to you. There's a proverb that's going to come that talks about how if you don't listen to the law, your prayers are an abomination. You remember that when we read through it? It's the same thing here in Judges. Listen to me, you men of Shechem, that God may listen to you. If you don't heed the word of God, you're not going to have faith. right? If you don't hear it and believe it, you're not going to have faith. And without faith, your prayer is an abomination. So, listen to me, you men of Shechem, that God may listen to you. And here's a parable about the trees. They're not literal trees. These aren't ints. Okay, so this is, this is not Lord of the Rings. We're just, it's a parable. The trees once went forth to anoint a king over them. And they said to the olive tree, reign over us. Right, notice the trees here. The trees have a nomination process. It's from amidst the trees. It's the, it's, the, it's the general population of the trees. It was not a prior ruling tree. There's a nomination process for an officer from amongst the trees. And they choose the olive tree. And he declines the nomination. But the olive tree said to them, Should I cease giving my oil with which they honor God and men and go to sway over trees? <coughs> when government's properly ordered, it's small. And so it seems like it's not that big of a deal. It's like, should I stop doing this thing and go to run the government? And the government's small. Yes, and it needs to stay that way. And if you don't go and run it efficiently and well and justly and keep it small, then somebody else will come and make it big. And then it's an impressive thing. An impressive thing with other people's money. Lots of other people's money. Lots of money from lots of people. And it's not the government's. That's the tendency. So oil is a symbol for strength. And it's for anointing. And it's a symbol of honor. A symbol of honor and strength. The tree that produces the honor and the strength didn't want to rule. So what did they do? 
Then the tree said to the fig tree, let's find a popular person, a pleasant person, fig tree, sweetness, right? They go to a kingly tree, the kingly tree says, no, I'm making money. They go to the priestly tree. The tree said to the fig tree, you come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, should I cease my sweetness and my good fruit and go to sway over trees? Then the tree said to the vine, you come and reign over us. Notice the vine is used We have wine used in the Old Covenant Sacrament and in the New Covenant Sacrament. And it brings joy. It cheers God and men. Also, by the way, wives are frequently compared to vines. And so you have this idea of the place where there's this cheering of the heart and it helps to to subdue the the concern of, of difficulty. And so the trees say to the vine... You come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, Should I cease my new wine, which cheers both God and men, and go to sway over trees? The diminishing of the importance of the office. They will all see the office as very important very soon. Let's go to the next part. Then all the trees said to the bramble, What do do brambles produce? Melons? Or coconuts? Or... What's a bramble? A bramble is a thorny, small bush. Thorny, small bush. And all the trees said to the bramble, you come and reign over us. Bad nomination. It's a bad nomination. And the bramble said to the trees, if in truth you anoint me as king over you, then come and take shelter in my shade. It's a thorny bush. It's a thorny bush. You think the trees are going to fit under the thorny bush? Okay, so irony, right? Neon sign, irony. So the tendency of unskilled people who want to rule is delusions of grandeur. Come and hide under my shade. All right, Bramble. You do you. It's pretty similar to transgenderism, by the way. He thinks he's tall. He identifies as tall. You come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in truth you anoint me as king over you, then come and take shelter in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Why the cedars? The cedars can be very old and very tall. Hundred foot tall cedars are not that rare. Bramble? Why is the bramble bush upset with the cedars? Because they're actually tall. He's making boasts about you hide in my shade. And he's saying, and if you don't, then I will bring out fire to burn down the cedars of Lebanon. Well, the cedars of Lebanon are going to have a hard time hiding in his shade. So, there is this claim here. The absurdities, the destructive nonsense... The waste of time and energy, the frustration, the lies, the requirement to lie, the requirement to live by lies. This is what tyrants do. If we do not rule, someone will rule, and it will not be good. So you have to work. You have to work hard. 
You have to increase dominion. You have to find ways to increase rule. And we have to work together to do it. We have limited time. We are far along the chastisement train. Verse 4, those who forsake the law, or on page 5, those who forsake the law praise the wicked, but such as keep the law contend with them. Do not flatter wickedness. Don't praise it. Don't call it good. Don't pretend it's good. We have to call it out. We have to contend with them. It's a requirement of the law. Verse 5, evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand all. If you try to have unbelieving conservatives, unbelieving libertarians, you go, you know, they're good enough. They, they basically, they kind of get it. They're going to leave us alone. We're going to be okay. They're not. They don't get it. They don't understand justice. They don't. Unless they're believing, unless they fear God, they're not qualified to rule, and they don't get it. Evil men, we're all evil, but what's the difference between those who are evil and those that are relatively more righteous? We've been given faith. We've been given wisdom. We understand the law. We start to apply the law. Evil men do not understand justice. But those who seek the Lord understand all. Those who seek the Lord understand all. Men of understanding, men of wisdom, men who feel the Lord, versus the wicked men who don't understand justice. The law of God is the standard for everybody. It is the proper rule for every aspect of life, including the civil sphere. So the battle for power, we are called to it, and we are called to apply the word of God there and to not cower about it. Verse 6, Better is the poor who walks in his integrity than one perverse in his ways, though he be rich. You're worried we're not going to be successful, it's not going to be effective, it's not going to be pragmatic, we're not going to win? Great. If you lose and you have nothing, better to have integrity than to be rich and a hypocrite. Verse 7, Whoever keeps the law is a discerning son. Whoever keeps the law is a discerning son. But a companion of gluttons shames his father. Later on, there's going to be a reference to the companion of harlots. Okay, both of these have to do with the seventh commandment. Both of them have to do with pleasure-seeking. Look, money's not the good. The knowledge of God is. Food's not the good. It tastes good. It tastes real good. But food's not the good. The knowledge of God is. Sex is not the good. The knowledge of God is. Power is not the good. The knowledge of God is. But the knowledge of God gives power. Tends towards wealth. Tends towards pleasure. And the enjoyment of that pleasure. As opposed to the problem of the ashen mouth. Whoever keeps the laws of discerning son, but a companion of gluttons shames his father. Bad company is directly associated here with bad morals. You need to ask yourself, who are you spending time with? What are you doing? Are you doing useful things or not? If you're mature and you are working hard around people who are unbelievers and you're trying to bring them to repentance, here's the reality of what's going to happen. They're going to get on board quickly or they're going to put you off board quickly. They don't want you ruining the party. And if they get on board, they'll understand what they need to change about the party. So we have to influence by boldness. 
The wicked flee when none pursue, and the righteous are bold as a lion. So we need to apply that boldness. So if you want wise companions, what are you doing to make it so that serious believers want to spend time with you? What are you doing to make it so that it's easy for that to happen? What are you doing to be useful? If you don't provide values to other, uh, value to other believers, then you're going to find that it's more difficult to make things happen. Keeping the law comes from discernment. Being around the wise will help you to grow in discernment. And when you grow in discernment, then you will have the ability to reach out to and evangelize to and disciple the gluttons without being influenced by them. So we have to be careful about our companions. And we need to make it so that we are useful to the brotherhood. Verse 8, One who increases his possessions by usury and extortion gathers it for him who will pity the poor. Remember what's usury? Charging interest on charity loans. Loans to brothers for their immediate consumption when they have a situation where they need help. It's not the same as charging high interest on a business loan. It's not the same as charging high interest for somebody who you do not have a good character reference from. Usury is charging interest on charity loans to brothers who need it for their immediate consumption. You give that without charge. You give that without charge. You need something immediately. You're covenanted with me. I have two shirts. You need one. I'll give you one. I'm keeping one for both of us. And that is what we're all called to do. That's what we're all called to do. You're not called to do that for everybody. You're called to do that in the covenant. Now, extortion is unjust coercive power. If you use usury extortion against people that are less powerful than you, then you are gathering wealth so that somebody who won't will use that for righteousness and mercy. So, verse 9. One who turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Talking about that already when looking at the other verse. Verse 10. Whoever causes the upright to go astray in an evil way, he himself will fall into his own pit, but the blameless will inherit good. Schemes to try to get the righteous to do evil for your own benefit, they fire back at you. The innocent get what you were hoping to get. So why not just be innocent, and then you'll get what you were hoping to get? Verse 11. The rich man is wise in his own eyes, but the poor who has understanding searches him out. This is a hierarchy of values one. So notice, go back on your own time, look at the handout. You'll see the A through E and then A through E prime, and you can see the similarities there. Wealth is a sign of wisdom, and the problem with signs is sometimes we confuse them with reality. And so if you have money and you think you're smart, then you might delude yourself into thinking you're wise when you're not. And if you do that, you might find that you're not correctable. But here's the thing about wisdom. The poor man who has understanding has so much more power than the rich man without understanding that he can make that rich man he can make that rich man show his foolishness. You can search him out. You can find the foolishness and put it on display. And you could even with all the teaching you received earlier on in Proverbs about how to talk to rulers and how to win people over, the use of gentle tongues, and things like that, you could even cause that person who thinks they're wise to realize they're not and to repent. So wisdom is more powerful than money. 
You see the extolling of wisdom that's going on. So 28.12 is a bridge about openness and justice. When the righteous rejoice, there is great glory. And when the wicked arise, men hide themselves. In capitalist countries, in places with freedom, in places where the law of God is put into effect in the public sphere, there's a great display, ornamentation, splendor that exists. You walk around in a commercial location in America. Walk around in a place where people shop. Go to the websites where people can buy things in America. And you find the amount of stuff, the, the sheer splendor on display, the availability of goods, the fullness of the markets. Walk into grocery stores before 2020. And... When you look at the grocery stores, you see all these goods, all this stuff. <coughs> Huge percentages of it just rot before it can be used. We're fine. It's fine. Still cheap. The amount of wealth on display all over the place, that does not exist with grasping, tyrannical regimes. You know what happens when you put wealth on display with a grasping, tyrannical regime? They take it. You're outshining them. Or you can obviously afford to not have this, so I might as well have it. What's yours is mine, and what's mine is mine. Right? That's the response of a tyrannical regime. So, the righteous allow people to be able to display skill and wealth and freedom and capability and beauty and it's not a danger. What happens in the biblical regimes, the, the, the regimes that you see in the Old Testament, the empires, the beasts, when beautiful women walk around, some king kidnaps them. That beauty does not get put on display. What happens? Those people are hidden. And we want modesty, but we do not want women hiding because they're worried the king is going to kidnap them. The difference between a modest display of splendor versus the wicked making it so we have to hide our stuff. Wisdom and work resulting in power. The righteous ruling. We have that bridge. We get into verse 13. He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. So in order, in order to avoid a place where everybody's forced to hide everything good, we have to uncover our sins sometimes and confess them. The cost of all of that glory, all that splendor, is that we have to uncover our shame when we are in conflict and we're in the wrong. If we try to pretend like we're in the right when we're not, and we try to cover it up and hide our faults when we're in conflict, that makes a hypocritical, dishonest, oath-breaking, tyrannical society. Confessing our sins to each other is necessary for liberty. It is necessary for us to prosper. And when we confess and forsake sins, mercy gets poured out by God and men. Happy is the man who is always reverent, always fearing God, People sometimes think, you know, well, can you can you be too reverent? Can you try to be too 
concerned about the fear of God? No. No. There's a particular line in Ecclesiastes where people think that's what's being said. It's not what's being said. I've taught on Ecclesiastes to many of you before, so I don't do that in detail. That's not the point. Happy is the man who is always reverent, always fearing God. But he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Put that next to the idea of covering sin. If you're covering sin, you're not fearing God. Because guess who knows about your sin even if you cover it up really well? God. As opposed to covering it up, repent. Confess it to God. Confess it to each other as appropriate. As appropriate. The one you've sinned against, the one you owe going to. Resolving the conflict. Verse 15, like a roaring lion and a charging bear is a wicked ruler over poor people. Again, poor people are easier to oppress and the wicked are emboldened. Remember earlier on it says that the wicked flee when no one pursues? If you give them all the power, they start to act bold. How are the wicked acting right now? Who's parading in the streets? Who feels comfortable talking about socialism? Who feels comfortable talking about taking away your liberties in various ways? Who feels comfortable talking about the preaching of the Bible as hate crimes? Like a roaring lion, a charging bear is a wicked ruler over poor people. A ruler who lacks understanding is a great oppressor. But he who hates covetousness will prolong his days. Hating covetousness, isn't that one of the requirements for rulers in Exodus 18.21? Pretty sure it did. Pretty sure it said that. I think it said that. And so if you hate covetousness, it will prolong your time in rule. It will prolong your days. Verse 17, A man burdened with bloodshed will flee into a pit. Let no one help him. One of the things we do is we try to make people feel good and normalized when they're guilty and haven't repented. You know what that does? It emboldens wickedness. When people are guilty and they have not repented and you normalize, you're taking them out of the pit they've fleed into. It's like a person being excommunicated and then restoring them without repentance. A ruler... Sorry, verse 17. A man burdened with bloodshed will flee into a pit. Let no one help him. Whoever walks blamelessly will be saved, but he who is perverse in his ways will suddenly fall. Swift delivery versus sudden fall. Blamelessness is the expectation of being saved from disaster. Perversity, sudden disaster. So, there's an alienating effect of sin. It causes people who sin to feel isolated. Tyrants start to feel isolated. I can't remember who the ruler is. I think it's the guy from Sicily somewhere. But Socrates famously saw some ruler, some king, walking around and he had lots of bodyguards. And Socrates' response was, wow, why do you need so many bodyguards? What have you done to the people that you should fear them so? There's an isolating effect of tyranny. And the isolating effect of tyranny is a part of the alienating effects of sin. It makes the tyrant isolated, and it makes the people 
who are ruled feel isolated. They hide their splendor. This is a curse. We should not disrupt the curse unless the person repents. We should ask God to bring the repentance and we should use the benefits of the isolation to prevent them from having power. You don't seek to fix the bridge before the other person is repented. All right, page nine. Here, this chunk, verses 19 and 24, is about steady work for gain versus hasty chasing of wealth. Okay, so you hear me talking about wealth, and you go, let's get some. Let's, let's make that happen. Let's do this thing fast. Let's next Wednesday work for you. you know? And so there's this desire to just get that. Wealth is power, stored up power. Let's make it happen fast. Okay, well, he who tills his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows frivolity will have poverty enough. It's about, you have to start devoting time to work, useful work. Now, tilling of the land, you, you can look at that and go, oh, man, that feels really inefficient. Well, think about this for a second. You put one grain in the, in the ground, and, and what do we hear in the parable of the sower? You put one grain in the ground, and what do the fruitful ones do? 30, 60, or 100 fold. That's a pretty great return. How are you doing in the stock market? 30, 60, or 100 fold? Oh, me neither. So if tilling the land produces that, that seems like a pretty good way to build wealth. Work is like that. Work is like that. How many of the grains in the ground don't sprout up? A lot. What's the return on those? Zero. Zero for one. I put one in, I got zero out. How many of them have to get 30 to one for you to break even? One in 30. And those are the ones that are on the low end, right? So the nature of work is, and the nature of the use of the word is, as we spread the word, as we do work, there are really high returns, but they take some time. There are really high returns, but they take some time. Good work yields abundance. He who tills his land will have plenty of bread, and he who follows frivolity will have poverty enough. A faithful man will abound with blessings, but he who hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. We're called to faithful work. We're not called to get-rich-quick schemes. We're called to faithful work. Faithfulness in work for the 30, 60, or 100 to 1 ratios of return results in huge abundance of blessings. Hasty efforts to get fast returns without investment waste time, money, and resources. And even if resources are gained, they will then be mismanaged if you just keep using them hastily. Faithful stewardship is pictured back in chapter 27, verses 23 to 27. Remember that about go and manage your herds, manage your flocks, go look to your stuff, do it well. This is necessary as a reminder because as we seek to save the world, we have to also make sure that the stuff we have is managed well right next to us. Care for your kids. Care for your wife. Care for your property. Work. Do things. There's a lot to do. There's a lot to do. And if we don't work and rule, the wicked will. And you do not want to be ruled by the bramble. So, verse 21, to show partiality is not good, 
because for a piece of bread a man will transgress. Where people are so desperate for money that they'll take bribes to do evil that are just small. One of the things that one of the things that I have been shocked by in terms of reports of corruption, when you hear about corruption, the amounts of money always seem a lot smaller than you expect. You feel like it would take more money to get some guy to sell out the people he leads. And it's pretty shocking how small it is. One of the most interesting ones, um, you know, Bill Clinton, when he was president of the United States, he made China most favored nation status. And when he left office, he went and spoke in English to Mandarin-speaking people for a few million dollars. I'm sure they all learned a lot, mainly Bill. But you think about that is so obviously a get money for doing something type of arrangement that that kind of behavior You'd think, you would think that a negotiation for the interests of the people he's ruling, as opposed to, you know, he's already expecting when he leaves office to get millions of dollars. You form president, you can make a lot of money pretty easily. How important is it to take some sort of a benefit for those types of things? The the cheapness with which people will betray their duties is shocking. Now, showing partiality is a type of bribe. Showing partiality is a type of bribe. Recognizing faces. What we are called to is equal protection, due process, equal application, or formality and process. Everybody feels like we shouldn't be that formal when you do something in a church business matter. It's a public court. It's a public court. Formality is meant to reduce the recognition of faces. To make it more public, require more action by more people following a process because we are weak and we will take bribes that are as small as a crust of bread. You think somebody smiling at you or not giving you the cold shoulder is a bribe we won't take to do injustice? You better believe it. The tendency of man is to take crusts of bread to do injustice. Verse 22, a man with an evil eye hastens after riches and does not consider that poverty will come upon him. Again, hasty pursuit of money versus work, steady work. He who rebukes a man will find more favor afterward than he who flatters with the tongue. This is how you make real friends. Flattery does not make real friends. Flattery sets people up for the fall, makes it so you can use them, Rebuking a man will find more favor afterward. Your real friends are the ones that are willing to tell you the negative things to your face. Your real friends are the ones that are willing to tell you the negative things to your face. Verse 24, whoever robs his father or his mother and says it is no transgression, the same as a companion to a destroyer. Children, be good stewards of your parents' estate. They own you. They own you. They own your work. You should be working well. You should try to serve your parents, do chores, do your lessons, accept the education they want to give you rather than rebelling against it. 
They provide you with room and board and raiment. They give to you nourishment of every kind. And you have a duty of service there. If you don't give that service, it's theft. And furthermore, not only is that theft, but if you take property and just think, well, it's my parents, I can take it. That's theft. And so this idea that someday your heir, okay, that could be a reason that you justify taking something now, but if you don't have permission, it's theft. And it destroys the household. It destroys the trust of the household. It's used as a symbol for the destroying of the household. Verse 25, trusting God to bless liberality versus trusting in mammon and stinginess. Verse page 10, he who is of a proud heart stirs up strife, but he who trusts in the Lord will be prospered. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but whoever walks wisely will be delivered. He who gives to the poor will not lack, but he who hides his eyes will have many curses. So what is this about? Pride and strife versus humility and peace and the implication that peace and unity bring prosperity. That's the first part. The proud heart stirs up strife. That prevents peace. That prevents unity. Therefore, it prevents prosperity. Working together in unity and peace allows for lots to be accomplished. Disunity prevents the division of labor, prevents cooperation, prevents the sharing together of the fruit. You trust in your own understanding as opposed to walking wisely, applying the law of God. That is going to display your foolishness. We don't know right from wrong apart from God's revelation. Walking according to your own heart, trusting in your own heart to guide you rather than the word of God, that is going to make it so that you have a proud heart and you're going to stir up strife. That is a proud heart. You're making your own heart God. You're being a law unto yourself. Verse 27, He who gives to the poor will not lack but he who hides his eyes will have many curses. You think about this, you give to the poor and the expectation is, well, I have less stuff, so I'm going to have less stuff. But God says, you give to the poor and it results in blessing in greater prosperity. There's a lot of elements of the structure of reality that support that, but here's what really matters. God has said it, he has given that promise, it is the way things work. And at the same time, it's easy to not find out it's easy to not look. It's easy to not figure it out. What does Job say? Job says, I searched out the cause of the widow. I sought out the orphan. Right? It's our duty to take special care. What we see later on, kings, people in authority, elders, patriarchs, it's your job, if you're in authority, it's your job to take special care of those especially in your covenant community, who have less resources. A special call to those who are injured and incapable of working to watch out for them, the orphan and the widow. Those are things we look for, people who are in need, people who are in temporary need. We look for those who are amongst us, who are in lower position, who need help, and you seek out their cause. You seek out their cause. In a godly society the concern to hear the orphan and the widow and the injured and the impoverished would be such that there's as much or more attention paid to them as to those who are in power. Because of the desire to overcome the natural tendency of attention to the powerful and the wealthy and the honored. And so the desire to help each other, if you're aware of a brother who needs something, 
Go and look into it. Go and ask about it. Go and try to help. Seek out each other's burdens and seek to carry them. Those who seem most obvious to have burdens are the ones you go to first. Unless there's someone closer to you that you ask about their burdens on the way. That idea of looking for the burdens and the way to carry those burdens. The Lord will bless that. He will multiply your resources. He will increase your strength. He will cause your honor to be multiplied. And the book of Job is about the question of why did that not happen to Job? Well, it did. After the Lord tested him. It did before, and it did after the Lord tested him. Let's not forget the end of Job. So we get to the bridge section here. And I just finished the review, so we'll get to the main part now. <laughs> I'll remind you of the bridge. When the wicked arise, men hide themselves. So it's the same as earlier. But when they perish, the righteous increase. There's a hiding that comes from tyranny, from the bramble bush. All those cedars learn how to hide themselves real quick. We had to find ways to remove the wicked from power. It's our duty. It's our duty to figure out how to remove the wicked from power. We have to be free of the wicked. And the basic rules are apply the law of God, build resources, work together, increase unity, increase wisdom. Wisdom gives power. Unity gives power. Resources give power. Working all the time, looking for opportunities to do useful things gives power. He who is often rebuked and hardens his neck will suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. You want to remove the wicked? Rebuke them. When their necks harden, they are being fattened up for the slaughter. The Lord loves to keep his promises, and he likes to destroy pharaohs. You want to see the wicked removed from power? Rebuke them. We need to be righteous as lions. Make them fear talking to us. Rebuke them. Don't be afraid. Rebuke wickedness. He who is often rebuked and hardens his neck will suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. The word of God is a sword It's a destroyer of the wicked. The power of hardening is that when people are hardened, God sets them up to shatter. 29 verse 2. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, the people groan. People complain about Christians. But being under the rule of Christians is sweet. There's a complaining about the righteous and the way that complaining is undermined is people expect the righteous to at least stand up to the wicked. They expect the righteous to at least stand up to the wicked. And when the righteous do not stand up and contend with the wicked, they are a murky spring and a polluted well. 
the way we get people to rejoice, even non-Christians, is by being the ones who have the guts to kill Goliath. If we are the ones that stand up, if we are the ones that say, we will do it, if we do good work, they can complain and complain and complain. But if we contend with the wicked, it displays the goodness of the truth. So a willingness to speak the truth boldly and not try to blend in is how we look different without compromise. And people realize, they start to realize our options are Christ or chaos. We have to be bold and that makes the contrast clear. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. They might not rejoice when we're telling them the truth, but when truth is applied to rule, the rule is beautiful. And it creates stability. But when a wicked man rules, the people groan. I can hear the groaning. Can you hear the groaning? A lot of groaning. That's the center. The center is verse 1. He who is often rebuked and hardens his neck will suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. The starting point, the introduction, has to do with being bold as lions. Rebuke is our weapon. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights.